0: The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. Good evening. Welcome back, everybody. Good to see you. Uh, Thank you, brothers, for praying. Grateful for that. I'm uh, grateful to be with you tonight. And uh, we're back in the book of Revelation, so please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. This is the Four Horsemen, uh, part 2. We're working through this text, Revelation chapter 6, 1 through 8. I we'll look forward to digging in with you more this evening on this text. We've got some ground to cover tonight, so you're going to have to listen quickly. <laughs> our text Revelation chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. I want to read the text for us and give us some context to these verses and then uh, we'll begin looking at what the Lord has for us from this text tonight. The sermon is The Four Horsemen. This is part two, Revelation chapter 6 verses 1 through 8. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold a white horse He who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see, And so I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard a voice in the midst of the four four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living, living creature saying, come and see, and so I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. This is the word of the living God, amen? Amen. Pray with me. Let's consider this text together. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for our Sunday evening worship service. So grateful to you, Lord, for blessing us in this way. Thank you, Lord, for the grace that you've poured out on us, lavished on us in giving us your word. And in particular now, this um, treasured book Uh, this magnificent book, the book of the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So grateful, Lord, for the blessing of being able to go through a book like this uh, verse by verse. Help us as we do. Give us wisdom. Help us not to go beyond uh, what you have intended to communicate to us here, but all that you have intended to communicate, Lord, I pray that we would embrace in faith and that we would apply it to our hearts and minds by your Spirit and we'd live in light of these things uh, as you've intended. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that this book is to us. Help us now, Lord, to be encouraged as we look at the text tonight. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The Four Horsemen, part two, Revelation chapter six, verses one through eight. So uh, so we return to our study now, Sunday evenings. I'm very grateful to be able to do this uh, through uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We now have come to chapter 6 in the book as the Lord has begun to loose the seven seals and to open the scroll. And I want, again, to remind us of the context of Revelation chapter 6. And I think it's really, really important that we begin to commit this context to our hearts and minds, to our understanding, so that we know where we are in the book. It's going to help us as we go through it. So the Apostle John, where we are so far in Revelation 6, the Apostle John has been given a vision now through a door standing open in heaven, where he sees into the throne room of God, into the most holy place, as it were, in the heavenly temple. And he describes the one seated there on the throne in Revelation chapter 4, and he does that in terms reminiscent of Daniel chapter 7, where the Ancient of Days is enthroned in glory, enthroned in the praise of heaven. John then draws our attention in the vision, draws our attention to a scroll that he holds in his right hand in chapter 5. And again, in terms that are reminiscent of Daniel chapter 7, one like the Son of Man comes, coming in the clouds of heaven, and he enters the throne room to take the scroll. He alone is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seven seals. He alone has prevailed. He is the promised root of David, the lion from the tribe of Judah. Now, when John turns then to look at this conquering warrior who has entered the throne room scene, John sees a lamb as though it had been slain. And this lamb steps forward to take the scroll as heaven and earth erupts in worship. Now, as we begin to consider this text, uh, began to consider this text in part one, We then placed the opening of Revelation chapter 6, which immediately follows Revelation chapter 5. There's no gap between the two. Those chapter divisions uh, weren't a thing until later. No gap between Revelation 5 and Revelation 6. We placed the opening of Revelation 6 not at some far-off future point in redemptive history, future to us, but rather in studying the redemptive historical Chronology, if you will, of Revelation 12, for example, and that's an important text for us to remember. In looking at the redemptive historical chronology, if you will, of texts like Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, or Daniel chapter 9, and then considering the fact that there is no break between the throne room scene of chapter 5, where the Lord Jesus Christ has ascended to receive the kingdom, and no break between that and chapter 6, where the Lord begins his reign over the everlasting kingdom by executing the decrees of God that are contained in that scroll, we've come to the good and right biblical conclusion that Revelation chapter 6 is a text that describes the last days. The last days comprised of those days that lie between the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his second coming. Coming, in other words, the last days, including the church age, the days of the church, the days in which we now currently live now these things these things were written for us, in other words, this scene that we see now in Revelation chapter six is a scene uh, that unfolds, if you will, all that takes place during the church age, and it 's these things written in these Seven literary cycles meant to encourage the church as we live through those times. So here then at the opening of Revelation chapter 6, in the second of those seven recapitulating scenes or literary cycles concerning the last days of Jesus Christ, this is where we're at. The resurrected Christ has ascended his throne. He has received the kingdom, that's chapter 5. The people of God are scattered into the wilderness of this world, preaching the gospel everywhere they go. And we saw that at the beginning of that diaspora after the murder of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. We see that explained in Revelation chapter 12. Satan has been cast to the earth, and he begins to persecute the people of God, Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. But the people of God are protected by God. They're nourished by God. They're preserved by God for a period that is referred to as the first half of Daniel's 70th week from Daniel chapter 9. And that reference confirmed by John's use of Danielic language, including 1260 days or time, times, and half a time. That reference, uh, that period, the period of Daniel's 70th week or Times, time, and half a time, that reference is used to refer to the entire time of the tribulation. The tribulation is the church age, the period of great tribulation, a period of the church between Christ's first coming and his second coming. A time that began when Jews, Christian Jews, were scattered at the martyrdom of Stephen and that time continues to our very day. Now, During this time of tribulation, this period of tribulation in which we now find ourselves, the people of God are said to overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimonies. And that is the life of a Christian, overcoming Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They do not love their lives even to the point of death for his sake. The church during this age faces persecution, faces tribulation, and even death before the Lord returns. And that's why we're called to be faithful during this time period, while we're we're called to endure or to persevere to the end, even like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, endured to that end. In the power of the Holy Spirit we're to persevere even to the point of death and into resurrection life. So then with that context in mind, as we come to Revelation chapter six, we pick up our text in Revelation chapter six, verse one. Now, I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, with a voice like thunder, Come and see. As the first of seven seals are loosed, the first of four living creatures near the throne of God addresses the first of four horsemen and addresses the horsemen with a command bearing the delegated authority of God Himself Come and see. So, connected then with the opening of the seal is the summoning of this horseman to come and behold the earth and to come behold those who are dwelling in it. He's then set forth, sent out, to pour out the judgments that are written in the scroll. He's sent to pour out what can only be described as tribulation. These horsemen are bringing tribulation upon the earth. Ezekiel described a similar scroll. It's a scroll that is written inside. On the one side and on the back side, a scroll filled with lamentation, mourning, and woe. Now what we see described is a period of great tribulation upon the earth. It's that tribulation is wrought by the four horsemen, these four horsemen of the apocalypse as they've been called, and Jesus Christ is executing the decrees of God that are signified by the opening of the seals. Uh, What Jesus Christ is doing is executing these decrees of God that are found in the scroll. Now, as the command is given to the first horseman, verse 2, John looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, with that, we're introduced then to the four horsemen. Now, again, remember, it's helpful to remember, In the progress of revelation to man, God's revelation to man, the book of Revelation is the capstone of the canon. So as such, the book of Revelation is constantly pulling from prior or previous revelation, and in particular pulling from the Old Testament to inform our understanding of those Old Testament types and their new covenant fulfillments. Constantly pulling from prior revelation to give us understanding of their new covenant fulfillments. So if we were to understand, if we wanted to understand more about these four horsemen, where would we go to look for information about that. We'd go to the Old Testament. We'd go to prior revelation. So let's do that. Let's go to Zechariah chapter one, and let's learn more about these four horsemen. Zechariah chapter one. In Zechariah chapter one, Judah is, it's in my Bible, I'm sure of it. Judah is, is uh, in exile, continues in exile. And Judah's continuing in exile because of a prior generation's sin against God. And God essentially reminds Judah, your fathers are dead, even my prophets are are dead, but the words of my judgments apply to you. They retain their power even over you. So Judah rightly confesses that in verse 6, Just as the Lord of hosts determined to do to us, according to our ways and according to our deeds, so he has dealt with us. that's a right acknowledgement on the part of this current generation. And then, Zechariah chapter 1, verse 7, Zechariah is given a vision. Look at verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month Shabbat, in the second year of Darius... The word of the Lord came to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, the prophet. I saw by night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, and it stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow, and behind him were horses, red, sorrel, sorrel is referring to a brown color or an ashen color, an ashen brown, and then white, verse 9. Then I said, my Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, we have walked to and fro throughout the earth and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. So these four horsemen. We consider the words of Zechariah here. These four horsemen were sent as watchmen, so to speak. They were God's watchmen. They look over all four corners of the earth. Remember in in the book of Revelation in particular, we see um, numbers with rich symbolism. Four is a number that speaks of entirety. There are four corners of the earth, for example, speaking of the entirety of the earth. Uh, the wind blowing from the four corners of the earth, it means blowing over all of the earth. Here, four horsemen sent to the four corners of the earth means that these watchmen of God were looking over the entire globe. They look over all four corners of the earth at the behest of God himself, and then they report back. Now we're considering an apocalyptic vision of Zechariah in symbolism, a very common feature of apocalyptic literature. These four horsemen, what do they represent? What do they signify? They signify the omniscience of God. They signify the fact that God knows and God sees all that takes place on the entire globe, to the four corners of the earth. There is not a segment, if you will, of this planet that God is not aware of what's going on. The Lord himself has sent them. Verse 10, the Lord sent them to walk the earth as though watching. And the horsemen who watch, answer back, report back with affirmation. We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. Now the angel of the Lord in verse 12, he knows that although the nations have taken their ease, there is an increasing judgment now that is building up like water behind a dam. Look at verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, How long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah against which you were angry these 70 years? How long will you withhold your judgment upon this oppressive nation, Babylon? How long will you withhold your judgments? How long will you withhold your mercy from your people? In other words, the time of their exile in Babylon is coming to an end. The angel's concern is that the pagan nations are at ease while Israel, God's people, are in exile. And so the house of the Lord and the city of the Lord lies in ruins while the nations all around are taking their ease as if there is no trouble awaiting them whatsoever. All the while, judgment upon them is building up like water behind a dam. And when will, the question is, when will God vindicate his great name among the nations? Why are they allowed to continue at ease? Verse 13. And the Lord answered the angel who talked to me with good and comforting words. So the angel who spoke with me said to me, proclaim saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am exceedingly angry with the nations at ease for I was a little angry and they helped, but with evil intent. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, says the Lord of hosts, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Again proclaim, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again spread out through prosperity. The Lord again will again comfort Zion and will again choose Jerusalem. So the return of the exiles, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, all Signs of blessings upon God's people. The four horsemen essentially given a command come and see, right? He sends out the four horsemen essentially go and see. Look at the earth, walk to and fro on it and report back. Behold the earth and those dwelling there. So the four horsemen representing the omniscience of God, they go out and they report back all that they see. They are his watching, if you will, and his knowing. They represent his omniscience. And not the omniscience of God who is afar off, unconcerned with the affairs of this world, but rather the omniscience of a God who is intensely involved and knows all things that take place in this world. The one who knows what goes on in the four corners of the earth. And he is intensely involved in this case, in the sense that he is going to deliver his people Bless his people in delivering them and pour out his judgments upon the wicked. He's going to rain down judgment on the nations. All for the sake of his great name, for the sake of his glory. These are essentially, in Zechariah chapter one, these are writers who come bearing, if you will, the judgment of God upon the nations. Look at Zechariah chapter six. Turn just a couple of pages to the right. Zechariah chapter six. And look there at verse one. We're asking the question, who are these four horsemen? What is the responsibility of these horsemen? How are we to understand this in Revelation chapter 6? Look at Zechariah chapter 6, verse 1. Then I turned, raised my eyes, and looked, and behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. And with the first chariot were red horses, with the second chariot, black horses, with the third chariot, white horses. And with the fourth chariot dappled horses. Their dappled horses are greyish or ashen, all strong steeds. So we see again these now the same very same colors mentioned in Zechariah six as were mentioned in Revelation chapter six. Here each of the horses pulling chariots. Notice the colors match, dappled horse and ashen gray, like the pale horse of Revelation six, verse eight. So then verse four, I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? The angel answered and said to me, "These are four spirits of heaven, who go out from their station before all the Lord, or before the Lord of all the earth." Won't spend too much time looking at this reference, but um, often spirit again referring to spirits uh, again a reference to the omniscience of God. God knows what is going on in the earth. Four horses to the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west, again, spread out all over the globe as God's providence extends out all over the globe, over all the earth, and again, associated with God's omniscience, four spirits of heaven, and associated with judgment. Look at verse 6. The one with the black horses is going to the north country, the white are going after them, and the dappled are going toward the south country, the south, certainly Egypt, Verse seven, then the strong steeds went out eager to go that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, go walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And he called to me and spoke to me saying, see, those who go toward the north country have given rest to, they have quieted, in other words, they've given rest to my spirit in the north country. The north country is a reference to Babylon. And the horse is going toward the north country, have given rest to his... There's a couple of ways of understanding that. Either rest to God's people, because God is going to deliver them from their exile, bring them back into their own country, or given rest to his spirit in the sense that God's judgment has been poured out on the Babylonians, on Babylon, and has quenched his wrath, so to speak, finally giving rest to his spirit. I think both of those uh, meanings uh, apply here. What we see then is with these horses and with their chariots and the horsemen, essentially, they're responsible for the same tasks as those horsemen found in uh, Zechariah chapter 1 and in Revelation chapter 6. The Lord sends them to go throughout all the earth doing the bidding of God. They're watching as symbolic of God's omniscience, and they're sent out in preparation for God executing his decreed will— And again, symbolic of God's omnipotent providence in carrying out his will. In this case, Zechariah chapter 6, pouring out judgment upon Babylon until his spirit is finally quieted, uh, or his spirit quieted towards his people, uh, his people coming to the end of their judgment, as it were, as their exile comes to an end. So then, what John is seeing in the vision of Revelation chapter 6 is, is reminiscent of these horsemen in Zechariah chapter 1 and Zechariah chapter 6. They go in preparation for God executing his decrees in his providence, one toward the nations who are at ease in pouring out judgments upon the nations, and they go in preparation for God delivering his people from their exile or from their bondage. Pour out judgments and deliverance for his people. They go not arbitrarily. No one can say that the judgment of God is arbitrary or that um, the people are in exile because of God's arbitrary decrees. There's nothing arbitrary about it. These represent the omniscience of God. God knows what is going on on the four corners of the earth. There's nothing arbitrary about what's happening. No one can say that God deals unjustly. He has sent out these horsemen, as it were, to verify, to affirm, and to report back exactly what's going on. God knows their wickedness, the wickedness of men upon the earth, and we know that God's judgment is just, amen? These horsemen help to accomplish that. So back in Revelation chapter 6 then, Revelation chapter 6 verse 1, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, "'Come and see.'" and look i looked and behold a white horse he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer so it's as if the angel with a voice like thunder representing the authority of god calls he summons the horseman to come and behold to watch to look and those who dwell on the earth come and see based on the understanding we've gained from zechariah we can surmise can't we that this horseman in revelation 6 verse 2 is not the Lord Jesus Christ. These four horsemen go together. They accomplish the bidding of God. They go to the four corners of the earth. They represent his omniscience. So this first horseman is not the Lord Jesus Christ, although there are distinct similarities in his description. We'll talk about that in a moment. Jesus Christ is the one opening the seals, and then the angel summons the horses, the horsemen. So this horseman is not Jesus Christ. From Zechariah, each of the four horsemen, they have the same nature. They have the same purpose. They're united in their purpose. They have parallel missions, as it were. And we'll see these four horsemen as parallel when the first four trumpets, uh, when we study that section of the text also. These four horsemen parallel with the first four trumpets and the first four bowls, each associated with four judgments of God. Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 16, you don't have to turn there. But Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 16, describes the arrows of God's judgment, God's four judgments, as though shot from a bow. We see a reference there to a bow uh, that is used to pour out God's judgment, uh, so to speak, and it's a bow that is carried by this rider on the white horse in verse 2. Now, the similarities with Jesus Christ on this first horseman, with his first horseman, um, this one coming on a white horse those similarities are very likely intentional and they're connected with the judgments of god or connected with the judgments of god are the counterfeits of satan one of the things that we'll find throughout the book of revelation is that which god typifies and then fulfills in jesus christ satan is continuously counterfeiting so it's very likely um, that this is a counterfeit that we see in verse two. The beast and his followers are said to go out and to conquer um, just as Jesus Christ goes out to conquer. Um, they ride horses as they do, wearing crowns, just as he does. And so the presence of this white horse in verse two could signify the prevalence of Satan's counterfeits in the book of Revelation. Uh, even Satan's ministers disguise, them, disguise themselves as angels of light. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And Jesus himself says at the opening of the tribulation period that false Christ will come. The Antichrist himself given authority in Revelation 13 to go out conquering and to conquer. So it's, it's likely that this again represents a satanic counterfeit, this white horseman. Um, and going out to conquer and going out conquering refers to false religion. And so the rider of the white horse is like the others. It's a delegated judgment of God upon the earth during a time of great tribulation. This judgment in particular seems to be associated with spiritual or religious deception, false religion, or apostate Christianity. We know from other places, other texts, that's exactly what happens. The falling away comes first. And though he may refer to false religion and may be allowed to conquer, Notice in the language of verse 2 that he's still under the omnipotent power of God who works all things after the counsel of his own will. The authority or that crown was given to him. It's uh, passive there. Uh, He got that from God. That authority was given to him by God. Now, the second writer also comes then. And the second writer also comes bearing lamentation, mourning, and woe. Look at verse 3. When he opened the second seal... I heard then the second living creature saying, come and see. And again, coming to see, coming to behold those who dwell on the earth and what's taking place there. Another horse then, fiery red, went out and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another and there was given to him a great sword. So if the, the judgment associated with the first horseman is false religion or deception, satanic counterfeits, the judgment associated with this horseman is outright bloodshed. Thus the color of the horse as red. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Jesus himself said, in the context of our witness in this wicked world, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In the context of our witness for Jesus Christ, don't fear, fear the one who can just kill the body. Right. Fear, fear him who can kill kill both body and soul, or destroy both body and soul in hell. We're to bear witness to Jesus Christ. That's our role here during this time. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be those of his own household. I would submit to you that this horse is representing that tribulation upon the earth the one who loves them the lord says the one who esteems them more than me the lord says is not worthy of me he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me he who finds his life will lose it and he who loses his life for my sake will find it this horseman was granted to take peace from the earth Zechariah 1 the nations are at ease they're wrongfully resting, taking their ease. Matthew chapter 10, those who live for Christ will certainly suffer persecution. The judgment, this judgment is signified in verse three, verse four, by a great sword that was given to him and to take peace from the earth. A word, this word is a word used to refer to the broad sword carried by Romans into battle, a word also used frequently in reference to the persecution of God's people, God's people persecuted by the sword. In Romans chapter 8, verse 35, this word, this word for sword, in particular referenced along with tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, and peril as those things which cannot separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. As it is written, he says, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. It's the same root word used above and often in the context of persecution. So yes, he takes peace from the earth. Matthew chapter 24, verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and he says, the Lord says, these are the beginnings of sorrows, the beginnings of birth pangs. But this language, again, often associated or particularly associated with the persecution of the church in great tribulation. Matthew chapter 24, verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because the lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. So think with me for a moment. We have the second red horse the horseman given a great sword and he is to take peace from the earth and to kill, uh, to kill those. Uh, essentially, he says that people should kill one another and there was given to him a great sword. We know from texts like Matthew 24, for example, that that great sword is used to pour out judgment upon the wicked of this, this earth, that people everywhere are killed by the sword. But we also know <coughs> in particular That God's people, God's people uh, are subject, if you will, to this tribulation that comes upon the earth also. That God's people are delivered up to the sword in texts upon, uh, multiple texts in the Bible. In particular, Matthew 24, we see God's people under the persecution of the wicked and subject to the sword, as it were. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. So John writes, as he's writing these, these, writing of these Periods of tribulation are writing of these judgments now that are poured out upon the earth. They're poured out upon the wicked. God judges the wicked for their sin and rebellion against them, but they also come upon God's people who are living through this time of tribulation. Uh, they come upon Christians. We know that to be true. Right? The very same judgments that are poured out on the wicked as judgments, Christians endure and suffer as martyrs often. Uh, and God working all things together for our good, but nonetheless, We suffer under those times of tribulation as well. And we see that in church history. Those who have been uh, to the stake for their faith, have died for their faith, have been beheaded for their faith. Even today, Christians today in larger numbers than ever before being killed, being martyred for their faith. That's happening today in our day and age. So again, uh, this book is not writing... John is not speaking of visions that pertain to some far-off distant point in the future. He's writing of things that are taking place in our world right now. During a period, the church age, as we've established the church age that is described as a period of great tribulation. It's a great tribulation that has come upon the earth. The earth will suffer these judgments in some places more than in other places. We've benefited or been blessed not to endure some of the same tribulation that our brothers and sisters in other places have suffered. And yet Christians suffer through these tribulations as well. So as John is writing, John is writing to you and I. This book is written to us. This is for our encouragement. And we're going to be persecuted. Persecution is ramping up. We're going to see these things ramping up like birth pangs on a pregnant woman. They're going to increase in frequency, increase in severity, and we're going to need to endure as faithful witnesses in this evil and perverse generation. The one who endures to the end will be saved. All of these judgments are against the nation's. But these are particular circumstances of tribulation through which the church herself must endure. And that's why those letters were written to the seven churches in the first cycle, right? encouraging them to persevere as faithful witnesses um, in difficult circumstances. The third writer then approaches in verse 5. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. Again, the color of the horse is significant. Black represents famine. Notice he has a pair of scales in his hand. Scales regularly referred to in the Bible as a means by which grain or food is measured. In particular here, wheat and barley. Verse 6, I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Do not harm the oil and the wine. This is a picture of economic hardship intense poverty, even famine. Our current inflation rate, (laughs) merely a small taste of this kind of crisis, right? We know nothing of this kind of poverty in our day and age. There are many, many, many around the world who are suffering this very tribulation, even as we speak. Uh, Great poverty and starvation, just because it hasn't happened to us yet, It doesn't mean that it's not taking place on the earth. We see this all over the earth at this time. The staples of life here must be measured out and rationed, and they come at an absurdly high price. And a denarius is a day's wage. So an an entire day's wage for a quart of wheat. Literally, the word there means a measure of wheat. And the measure that it's speaking of is a day's portion. So an entire day's wage for a measure of wheat that would be roughly 20 times what they paid for it in the first century. 20 times what they would have paid for it. Another entire day's wage for three quarts of barley. And again, each of those um, consider really a, a minimum that is necessary to sustain one person for one day. A measure of wheat for a day would co- take a day's wage. In other words, the common man would continuously work and not have enough to provide For himself, much less provide for a family. Certainly not enough to buy luxury luxury items like oil and wine. Don't even concern yourself with them, uh, the angel says. Don't worry about the oil and the wine, strike the wheat and the barley. And the common man has to continuously work just to have enough food for himself for one day. Now, again, This is economic hardship that comes upon the earth. We see this kind of famine, this kind of hardship all over the world at any given time in history. This age is an age of tribulation. The common man unable to afford to live. Adults and children dying of starvation or malnutrition. We see that happening all over the world. But the church in the first century would have understood this intimately. They would have understood this poverty, this kind of tribulation, this difficulty. When we consider the seven letters of the seven churches, remember that in those seven letters, we often encountered the trade guilds uh, in the circumstances of those seven churches. Each of the trade guilds associated with common pagan deities. And not only were Christians excluded from those guilds because of persecution, Christians couldn't participate in any way in those guilds because of the idolatry of those guilds, the idolatry of those pagan gods that were associated with them. And so this kind of economic distress would hit the church particularly hard. It was difficult even to get food. And that's true in many places in our day. I remember one time I was uh, witnessing to a Chinese man. And the Chinese man um, was essentially impoverished. And had to flee the country, escape, if you will, uh, because of his faith in Jesus Christ. He had professed faith in Jesus Christ. When he professed faith in Jesus Christ, they uh, removed his ability to find work. He was fired from his job almost instantaneously, um, hired at another job. As soon as he, they found out that he was a Christian, he was fired from that job. Couldn't find work, couldn't find work. They had essentially, and he was a, uh, an educated brother. Um, he had gone to university. He had studied to be a doctor. And so he had plenty of means to provide for himself, but he couldn't get work because of his faith in Jesus Christ and had to leave the country. They had essentially impoverished him and impoverished his family to the point where he had a bike to get around on, and that was it, and could hardly afford food, had to leave in order to be able to eat. I remember years ago, was talking to an Egyptian uh, couple, a family, a mom and a dad who had professed faith in Jesus Christ in Egypt and had been persecuted um, and lost their jobs in Egypt, Got new jobs, fired from those jobs, fired from... Eventually, they had to flee Egypt and move to the U.S. so they could afford to live. Impoverished because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's increasingly true, increasingly true in our own country today. We're already seeing people essentially fired from their jobs because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're being pushed and being tempted to bow the knee to a local guild god, and Christians will, be, Christians will refuse to do it. Christians cannot do that. So it's becoming increasingly difficult, even in our own day. And brothers and sisters, we're gonna, we are likely going to face, even in our lifetime, circumstances where there will be scarcity, Habakkuk chapter three, verse 17. Though the fig tree may blossom, may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. Though the labor of the olive tree may fail and the fields yield no food. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Again, these are circumstances that are not, that are not designated for some future far off time. These things are happening right now. These judgments are being poured out and the church is facing tribulation. Just because you and I don't sense it in the same way or experience it in the same way that our brothers and sisters around the globe do doesn't mean that it's not happening. It is happening and it can certainly happen here as well. Finally, the fourth horseman, verse seven. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power, or authority, was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Ashen, again, an appropriate color, considering the death that this writer brings with him. Uh, Later, we'll see these numbers increase as the birth pains of tribulation increase in frequency and severity. For now, though, he has limited authority to release these malevolent forces upon the earth to kill a fourth of the earth. The number four, again, symbolic as we know, a reference to the entirety of the earth. or four corners of the earth, winds, four winds to the ends of the earth, four horsemen who go out and to and fro over the entirety of the earth. And now one-fourth then, a limited amount, one-fourth of the earth is afflicted with this particular judgment. In other words, these are global. These events are global. The concern is global. There is global significance to this. And this rider, this horseman, given authority over one-fourth of the earth. I mentioned that this morning in the sermon in Romans chapter eight, uh, speaking of now in as of as of 2021, the 13,800 children under the age of five that die every single day, and those 13,800 children who die every single day—that's what we know. What we know about dying for vastly uh, preventable, largely preventable reasons—they uh, don't have to die, uh, and yet they do. But then you add to that the 74 million babies per year who are murdered in abortion. And that number, two hundred and thirteen thousand eight hundred, every single day, every single day. Uh, that's uh, over two per second that are dying. Uh, it's um, an unimaginable number. That death is taking place all over the world, all over the world. And here, this one giving given authority to essentially with the sword or bring the sword to a fourth of the earth. That sounds about right, (laughs) it would seem, in the experience of the earth. People being killed, death, death. You've heard that mentioned routinely, that in this country where there's such prosperity, in this country there is a culture of death, and that's right. And notice, this death with the fourth horseman, Brought about by God's four judgments sword, famine, pestilence, and beasts. I would submit to you it's a bunch of beasts aborting and murdering their children uh, day in and day out. But these, this death brought about by God's four judgments. We just went through a, an example of pestilence where millions worldwide killed. And that's one we had our eye on. There are other examples of pestilence killing people all over the world on a regular basis. One of God's judgments. A sword, people being brutally murdered, essentially. Uh, For example, in one particular war in Ukraine that we see, but people brutally murdered by their own governments in other countries, happening all over the world, even as we speak. In other words, again, this horseman is pouring out his judgments. These judgments are poured out during the church age, the age in which we now live, and the church. In whatever location she finds herself, the church is enduring that tribulation even as we speak. That's why this book is so precious. That's why God's word to us during this time of great tribulation is so needed and so necessary. When you and I face this kind of persecution, I'm going to find a lot of my time spent in the book of Revelation taking comfort in God's word from this book to us. This is for us to encourage us. Turn with me to Ezekiel 14. Ezekiel 14. Let me me give you some context to these judgments that are being poured out. In Ezekiel 14, God is judging Israel for her idolatry. And not only in judging Israel for her idolatry will he pour out judgment, but he's also going to pour out his judgment upon the nations. And in the midst of God pouring out his judgment upon the nations and upon Israel for her idolatry, there is a remnant that remains. It's a remnant that he is purifying and refining for himself through it all. it goes to show you, to make the point, that although God is pouring out his judgment upon Israel for her idolatry, and at the same time that he's pouring out his judgments upon the wicked for their rebellion against God, that same judgment poured out upon Israel for her idolatry and poured out upon the wicked is used to refine and purify his people. They suffer through the same judgments as a refining, as a purifying fire. Listen to verse 12. Ezekiel 14, verse 12. The word of the Lord came again to me saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread. Do you see? Famine, black horse. I'll send famine on it. I'll cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. In other words, no one else is going to be delivered. Verse 15. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land. There's another one, right? Beasts. They empty it and they make it desolate, so desolate that no man may pass through because of the beast's. Even, those these, even though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither their sons nor daughters. They would only deliver themselves, and the land would be desolate. Or, verse 17, if I bring a sword on that land and say, sword, go through the land, and I cut off man and beast from it. Even though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but only they themselves would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my fury on it in blood and cut off from it man and beast, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would only deliver themselves by their righteousness. We see the four primary judgments of God referenced there, famine, beasts, sword, and pestilence. Verse 21, for thus says the Lord God, How much more it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword and famine and wild beasts and pestilence, to cut off man and beast from it. Yet behold, verse 22, there shall be left in it a remnant who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Surely they will come out to you. You will see their ways and their doings. Then you will be comforted concerning the disaster that I've brought upon Jerusalem, all that I have brought upon it, and they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings, and you shall know that I have done nothing without cause that I have done in it, says the Lord God. In other words, that which brings judgment upon the wicked is a means through which God comforts his people. When you see their ways and their doings, when you see their faithfulness, when you see them persevering through trust. How how many of us have taken such great encouragement from a biography of a martyr who died for the faith, right? And died um, in such faithfulness, giving glory to God. What an encouragement to our own soul, right? We take comfort from that. Look at Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32. And again, these are, these are covenant judgments, if you will. God pours out these judgments because the people are given over to idolatry. And these are Uh, covenant curses. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 22. Verse 22. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. It shall consume the earth with her increase and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap disasters on them. I will spend my arrows on them. The Arrows of his judgment. They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I will also send against them the teeth of beasts with the poison of serpents of the dust. The sword shall destroy outside and there shall be terror within. Famine, pestilence, beasts, and the sword. Covenant curses. So what is God doing then in Revelation chapter 6 with these four horsemen? With the four horsemen come the four judgments of God. With the four horsemen come the covenant curses. The four horsemen, representing the omniscience of God, knowing what goes on in the four corners of the earth, pours out his judgments upon the wicked. And those judgments carried, as it were, borne by these four horsemen. At the same time, his church endures. They're called to a faithful and persevering witness, even in the midst of tribulation, even in the midst of trial, as God pours out what are essentially covenant curses upon the earth. So, judgment's poured out on the earth, but we're not exempt. We're not exempt. All these things, again, written to encourage the church. And remember, what we're dealing with is a literary cycle. That deals with the entirety of the church age, from the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to his second coming. And the church is persevering as a faithful witness all the way through that time period as these judgments of God are poured out in what is described as a period of great tribulation. We'll see that more as we work through the book. These things are written for our comfort when we see our brothers and sisters endure under such difficult circumstances. It encourages us. And we see those who have given their lives for Jesus Christ singing his praises, even in the midst of great tribulation. There can be in this life a temptation to turn back. Brothers and sisters, to turn back is to turn back to perdition. We are not of those who shrink back to perdition, but believe those who believe to the saving of their soul. We must persevere. We must be a faithful and enduring witness in this world. In this time, during the church age, we are brought, as it were, into warfare. And it's during this time that we must wage war and worship. That's what we're called to do. Behold, Jesus Christ says, I am with you even to the end of the age. He is on the throne. He is ruling and reigning. He is bringing this about. And we know all of this is headed In a specific direction, it's headed toward the return of the Lord Jesus Christ in victory when he will pour out full and final judgments upon this this earth. The whore of Babylon will be put down and God's people will be delivered. And the revealing of the sons of God will take place at the end of the age. Uh, We will enter with him our glory. So what are we to do during this time? We're to cling to him. Cling to him in faith. Keep our eyes upon him as we face difficulty. And whatever difficulty you face in life... We're to face that as a faithful and persevering witness looking forward to our everlasting hope. Uh, Romans chapter eight on Sunday morning, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. So let's cling to him, amen? Amen, pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for our time in this book. Thank you for Revelation six. Thank you for uh, helping us to understand these things that we might live for you as we should. Even when we face our own times of difficulty, and that tribulation increasing, we know, in frequency and in severity. And as we face that tribulation, Lord, we want to we face that well in faithfulness, as a faithful and persevering witness for our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to do that. Strengthen us by your Spirit to do that. Help us to take encouragement from our brothers and sisters in Christ who have faced that same tribulation all over the world, even in this day. And help us to bear that torch ourselves when it comes to us. Help us to do that well, do that in a way that glory glorifies you, that honors you uh, as a good and faithful testimony of your grace and mercy to us. Help us to do that in a way, as we discussed this morning, not in a way that makes us the, the laughing stock of the nations, but in a way, Lord, that honors your name, that magnifies your great name, that magnifies your glorious salvation. And may all of the elect pour into the kingdom for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, as we do. Help us as we live during this time. Help us to honor you in it in Jesus' name. Amen.